again. This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid with another edition of our Atid Jewish Educators Book Club podcast. This time I'm sitting with Rabbi Ronnie Ziegler of Alon Shvut, who is the Director of Research for the Torah Harav Foundation, uh, which has taken upon itself to publish the, the writings of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik through its Me'otzer Harav uh, series. The tenth volume in English in that series has just been released as And From There You Shall Seek, which is a translation of one of Rabbi Soloveitchik's most important works, Uvikashtem Misham. Um, a number of the volumes have also appeared in, in Hebrew, and uh, Rani has been the editor of a number of these, of these volumes, which have been, of course, an important contribution uh, in bringing to light posthumously, unfortunately, uh, many of Rabbi Soloveitchik's uh, collected essays or works. This, uh, this work is, of course, uh, appeared uh, 30, 30 years ago 30, 30 years ago in Hebrew, although it had been written in the... 30 years before that. Right, in the 19, 1940s. Um, and in many ways is a, should be viewed as a companion volume to what is perhaps Rabbi Soloveitchik's most important work, uh, the Ish Halacha, the Halachic Man, although I think on previous occasions you and I have debated this topic, whether or not that is indeed the role. But certainly it would... Uh, it would uh, take second place if I'm if I'm wrong, um, and this is in very much ways a companion volume, uh, in, in a certain way almost a I wouldn't say a mirror image, but to a very real degree uh, the Ish Halacha, the Halachic Man, is a description of an ideal of uh, and the Rav explicitly says that the Ish Halacha is a description of his his father and his uncle and his grandfather, the progenitors of the great uh, Brisker tradition. And this is, an, in a way, a more, a more personal piece. He, to a certain degree, the reader senses uh, that the Rav is describing his own religious experience, his own um, you know, inner working through of different uh, religious phenomena, and his own uh, sense of his relationship with God, and uh, and dvekut, the issue of dvekut, which is of course one of the, one of if not the major theme of of the work. So these are two very important companion pieces. In the very useful introduction, the editors um, talk about this connection between the two works, and of course give a general overview to to what is uh, not a simple work to to approach. And that, of course, is very useful as, as these kind of apparatus of the other volumes in the series have been very useful to the reader, both the readers that are very familiar with Rabbi Soloveitchik's work as well as the, the novice. Uh, Ronnie, maybe you can tell us a little more about what, what is this book? What, what, what in this lengthy essay, what is Rabbi Soloveitchik setting out to do? Well, first, you, what you said about this being a very personal work is, uh, very, uh, is a very important comment. Although, interestingly, aside from one personal anecdote at the end from his childhood, he doesn't write in a personal vein right. the way he does in, uh, in Lonely Man of Faith or in other works. Uh, but it definitely is, is a very heartfelt work. And I would just question, you know, whether Isha Lacha is his most important work and this is second. I would say the reverse. I would say that this, in many ways, is a more important work than Isha Lacha. And although I never asked the Rav personally about it, and my impression is from those who knew him is that uh, he felt that this was 
his magnum opus, his most important work. Uh, Rav Lichtenstein describes, uh, he must have heard this from his mother-in-law, from Rav uh, Soloveitchik's wife, how when the Rav was composing it in the 40s, he, would, he wrote it in these fits of passion and inspiration. He would start writing it in the evening and he would continue till morning. And she would ask him, you know, it's not good for your health, just leave it for tomorrow. And, and he was adamant because he was deep in the struggle, in the, the passion, these issues that he was working out. Uh, now you ask, what is the work? The work is uh, very hard to characterize uh, in a sentence, but uh, actually you can get an interesting insight into it from the three different titles that it had. Uh, when he wrote it in the 40s, he called it Ish Ha'elokim. Uh, uh, obviously trying to parallel... Obviously there's, there's, right, there's some connection to Ish there, what the nature of that the, connection the is. The halachic man, the man of God. Yeah. So uh, some, uh, some readers understand that Ish and Ish are the same person. He's just presenting two different approaches, two different ways of describing the same person. Others would say, no, Ish and Ish are different people. Uh, and if you want to know who Rav Soloveitchik is, he is Ish and Ish uh, others would go even further. They'd say Ish Halakha is not Rav Soloveitchik, that's his father, his grandfather, and Ish Elohim is him. So there are many different ways of approaching it. Uh, but clearly, from, Isha, from the description Ish Elohim, you see it as a, as, as a, a foil, a counterpoint, to, or, or a companion to Ish Halakha, although stressing not just the purely strict, disciplined, halakhic side, but the searching for God, the yearning for God, uh, in the 60s, he, so he wrote the book in the 40s and then he put it in his drawer uh, for the next 20 years. We don't know why. Um, and, you know, I've asked Rav Lichtenstein. Uh, no, one, no one really knows. Then, uh, when he took it out in the 60s, he started reworking it. He wanted to prepare it for print in a volume uh, of uh, Talpiot, I think, that was going to be published in memory of Rav Chaim Heller. And he wanted to publish this in that issue, although he didn't. Uh, and there he had changed the title. He called it Halakha Gluya Vava Mesuteret. Overt Halakha and Hidden Love. And that, I think, captures another main theme of the book, in that we may think that Halakha is this very strict, formal, discipline, obedience, but really Halakha, that's the external manifestation of Halakha. Subjective, interpersonal. Right, that Halakha really expresses love, and love in two directions. The love of the giver of the Halakha, that God gives Halakha not in order to oppress us, not in order to subjugate us or to enslave us, but because of his love for us. It's something that's good for us, it's something that brings us closer to him, it's something that expands our existence and makes us, makes us better, larger, uh, purer people. Uh, and it also expresses halakha, not just love on the part of the giver, but on the part of the receiver. In other words, one can observe halakha uh, like a slave, uh, following his master's dictates. And the Rav recognizes that that's an important facet of religiosity. But he claims in this book that ultimately that can and maybe should be superseded. And that one should observe halakha not just out of uh, fear, but out of desire, out of yearning, and out of love. And so the observance of halakha can also express the hidden love of, of, the, of the performer of halakha, not just of the giver of halakha. The ultimate title that he chose, he again, in the 60s, he put it back in his drawer for about another 15 years. And uh, he published it only in 1978. And then he gave it the title that we have now, which is Uvikashtemisham, which is from a pasuk in Dvarim. Uh, about when the Jews sin and they go into Golos, it says, 
Um, and here we see again it harkens back to the Ishalokim theme of man's passionate yearning search for God. Uh, now you can, on the other hand, even though the book ranges very widely over many topics, you can you can uh, it does have a structure that's very easy to discern. Unlike let's say Ishalacha, where it's harder to figure out exactly what the structure is at some points. Um, but here, there's really a three-part development to the book. Uh, he describes three stages of religious awareness, of religious consciousness. The first stage, and you know, this is, uh, I'm going to take 150 pages and put it into a sentence or two, but uh, the first stage, the lowest level of religious development, uh, is where man starts off uh, searching for something beyond himself, something that transcends himself, something that's an absolute that can anchor his existence. And he looks for God within the traces of God, within the created world, within his soul, within uh, his ideas, and he's looking for something above himself, something absolute. Now that search, while valuable, and this is an important point that the Rav makes, that this search is valuable and is recognized by Judaism, ultimately it's doomed to failure. At that point, God reveals himself to man. But man at this point can only understand revelation as something which is imposed upon him, which coerces him. And from here there ensues a dialectic in stage one of religious development between the passionate yearning but perhaps non-halachic search for God and the other hand the fear and obedience that characterizes uh, revelational observance. The, uh, following the mitzvah. That's stage one. And here we really have a dialectic of contradictories between what the Rav calls bitachon and pachad. Bitachon of the original search and pachad of the event, of the revelational. Stage two is, he refers to as avavira, where both of these senses uh, become complementary, where man no longer seeks to enhance his existence or protect his existence by observing halakha, but rather he wants to come close to God because of God's greatness. Stage three is dvekut, where he overcomes this dichotomy and somehow he merges this, rev- this revelational Sinai existence with his desire for freedom, autonomy, creativity, and he finds it within halakhic observance. What now... The work, um, you know, for our listeners who are concerned with uh, you know, issues related to teaching and education, you know, largely defined, and of course with more parochial issues of getting up tomorrow morning, going into the classroom. What would you say are some of the, the topics or themes or issues that the Rav raises here that have the clearest uh, implications for work in education? Well, of the three levels that I described, there's a, there's a progression, the lowest level of bitachon and pachad, and that's where a lot of people get stuck, that they just view halacha as something imposed upon them. He wants people to try to leap beyond that, and that's through deeper experience, deeper knowledge, that they should try to relate to halacha as avavira. Yira meaning not fear, but awe. Um, now, the second level is really the level that most people will get to. Uh, only, you know, great geniuses, people of great spiritual depth and broad knowledge can reach the level of Dvekut that he describes. Interestingly, he devotes the least attention to the second level, even though that's the level that most of us 
can get to yeah, or get stuck on or get stuck on but you know how many people can reach the level of Baker that he describes not many right. <laughs> so in that sense uh, the book is less useful for someone walking into the classroom because you know he's trying to get people from level one to level two at best level three you can get to after many right. years of right. study right. but um, I think that he makes a lot of very important points uh, some of them Derek Agav and uh, and some of them are essential to his theme. For example, uh, there, I, would, I would divide his, the points that are relevant into two main sections. One is things that just come up. For example, when he talks about brachot, when he talks about kedusha. Uh, he says, I, I read recently uh, about uh, someone at MTA who organizes tiulim in, I don't know, I guess the, the Catskills or somewhere to get people to try to connect with religious feelings through nature. This is more common in Israel. Yep. People go out to the desert or whatever. But in America, less common in yeshiva day schools. And this is something that the Rav would approve of. Uh, he writes that, uh, that Judaism approves of the search for God for transcendence within nature. And that's why we say brachot when we, when we hear light, when we hear thunder, when we see lightning, when we see oceans, when we see... We should see God within all that. I think that's a very important point. Another important point that he makes is uh, when he's talking about Ava Vihira. He says that basically religious existence, there's a constant going back and forth that the Rambam describes between on the one hand you, you sense God's greatness, you want to come closer to him, but as you come closer to him you realize how paltry you are in comparison and then you recoil. And he says religious existence for most people, this Ratzov Vashov. exactly. And so he brings two... Kind of, kind of, uh, 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 swinging back and forth pendulum yeah. right and he brings two very common examples that once you see it it becomes obvious one is brachot you start off baruch Ata Hashem you address God in the second person distant far away no 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 Ata oh, yeah, yeah, close, yeah, yeah. close right you want to come close to God baruch Ata you God I'm talking to you directly but as soon as you talk to God suddenly you recoil and then the bracha changes to the third person you don't say uh, you don't say Shakol nasa bitvarecha. You say shakol nasa bitvaro. Or you, you suddenly switch in the middle of it. Now, this phenomenon was noted as early as the Rashba. He has all chuva about this. But the Rashba, this is a theme that the Rub addresses elsewhere in the Rashba right. Talat right. I think is translated in the uh, Worship, Worship of the Heart. Of the heart. Right. Uh, also, another theme that comes up elsewhere, but that he discusses here very nicely, also this Ratzovashov in Kedusha. You say, on the one hand, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. But he's saying, transcendent, transcendent. But Malokol Arts Kevodo. His glory fills far, the earth. But he's close, close, close. Right. Baruch Kod Hashem Mim Komo. He's distance, but Malokol Arts Kevodo. So uh, he says that the essence of religious living is this back and forth. Now, Halavai, that most people, when they, when they do mitzvot, that they would have this constant sense of, of coming closer to God, being distant from God. Most people, it's just mitzvot Hashem Mulumada. They're just going through the motions. Um, on this, yeah. on this topic, which is liable to be, which is liable to be, um, very much at the core of working with uh, uh, religious high school kids, this kind of sense of you know, um, you know, a personal relationship to God versus a versus a uh, kind of a group relationship to God, uh, um, you know, my search versus God searching for me, or. In, in terms, you know, man's search for God, God's search for man, which is, you know, a theme that kind of echoes 
echoes uh, through here. Uh, These kinds of the dialectic which sometimes um, people in, in certain stages of religious development kind of get caught up on. Uh, questions like, uh, well, you know, if prayer is meant to be this deep, uh, this deep personal, uh, you know, com- communication uh, between me and God, why is it so rote? Why is it so fixed? Why is it so set? The same words, the same time of day, you know, these are questions that uh, that students have. These are questions that adults have, and these are questions that educators are 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 faced with time and time and time again. In this point, the discussion of Ratzova Shov, um, which here in the book I think starts in chapter nine, around page uh, page uh, sixty nine, he talks about the mysterious pendulum like movement of the man of God, Ratzova Shov, dashing back and forth. Um, the strange dialectic is reflected in the phrasing of the prescribed blessings, which you, which you, you pointed out. He doesn't, um, he doesn't seem to address directly on. Is there a, is there a, a starting point? So we, we seem to see it as kind of like a circle that moves, you know, back and forth. And you can, in theory, jump into the circle at any point. And in theory, you can move clockwise or counterclockwise. Um, most people are initiated to the circle from the the sense that you know we are doing mitzvot, we are the commanded, and we fulfill the commandments. Uh, like you said, many people do it, you know, doing it out of a kind of a rote sense of of a behavioristic uh, uh, conditioning, uh, and then we are encountered along the way. Does it have to be? I mean, this this seems to me to be a topic that you know, kind of contemporary education and like the neo-spiritualists, uh, you know, that uh, that we encounter here in Israel and I think they they're have their parallels, although they might be dealing with slightly different issues in North America, um, you know, they're kind of in, in, its, um, in its most uh, shallow way, uh, you know, kind of express itself as like the place of singing and music, uh, you know, and davening, uh, but obviously ha- has deeper concerns what, what do we think the Rav would have to say about these phenomena? Does it have to be starting with Ratso and ending with Shove and going back and forth? Can we jump into the circle elsewhere? Is there these larger questions of, you know, what I, what I term, that I don't mean to be pejorative, you know, kind of like the neo-spiritualism, um, you know, but sometimes people jokingly refer to in Israel as, you know, Chabakuk, you know, Rashi Tebot for Chabad, Abreast Love, Karli Bach, Kuk, Rav Kuk, you know, uh, how would we understand this, or how, how, to, how, from the perspective of the essay, how? Well, uh, I don't want to put words into the Rev's mouth, but I'll tell you what uh, my take is on on what what uh, the ideas what ideas come out of the essay. Uh, the Rev starts off with an assumption that I think the neo spiritualists share, and that's that man naturally wants to come close to God. Man naturally searches for God. Now he doesn't always understand this as a search for God. The, the starting point of the essay is before revelation, before one becomes aware of Torah and mitzvot, he said a person naturally wants to transcend himself. He wants to find something absolute. He wants to find an anchor for his existence, something that will give meaning to his life. Uh, As Viktor Frankl called it, man's search for meaning. Uh, And I think that this is an assumption that uh, he felt that man naturally yearns for God. I don't think that, I think a lot of people don't feel that. But what's interesting is that he starts off by saying that 
man doesn't necessarily look for it at the beginning within religion. He looks for something absolute, something self-transcendent within many realms, within the sublime in nature and in art and in and, and the deep ideas of philosophy and the depths of the human psyche and the unmediated experience with nature. These are all looking for the absolute, which we would call looking for God, even if a person who, who's doing that is not looking for God. Now, if a person doesn't feel this need to transcend himself, if he just wants to, I don't know, get through life, uh, make some money, whatever, then this es- the, whole, the whole premise of the essay doesn't apply. Right. Uh, but I think that the neo-spiritualists uh, do feel this way, that this is a natural desire in man. And, and, if, uh, and so they, they share a starting point. As for the means of attaining it, uh, Rav Soloveitchik being a Litvak had other means of attaining it. What, what's interesting also is that the whole end of the book, the last ten chapters of the book, the second half of the book, he takes three very common things, Talmud Torah, Shmirat HaMitzvot, and Misara. Uh, and these are three things that we understand in terms of performance, obedience, and he shows... He explodes them to show how they... He, he gives them totally different meaning. He shows how in these three activities, man partners with God. Man becomes a creator. And everything that he had sought originally, this search for the absolute, for meaning, for creativity, while preserving his freedom, not feeling like a, like a slave, not feeling oppressed, he finds them exactly through these three media. I think that's a very powerful message, even if not all of us can reach this level... It's a very powerful aspiration. Well, that's an interesting point. In other words, the, the most, uh, perhaps the most evocative uh, passage in the essay, and the, the, clearly the most well-known, even people who haven't read the essay uh, but are uh, kind of within the realm of Rabbi Soloveitchik's thought are all familiar with the story, as you point out, the only real personal, uh, clearly directly personal story at the end where he tells the story of his young, his young boy. He, uh, this is in the... Uh, in the book, it starts on page 143, uh, where he relates the personal experience uh, of what the Masora, what being part of the community of tradition uh, means. And he tells a story of himself. He was a lonely, forlorn boy. Uh, he, he had no friends. His only friend, as it were, was the Rambam, was Maimonides. And he tells a story of... And this is before he even opened the Rambam. He was right. five years he was old. A little boy. He didn't know anything and about the Rambam. His father would give a shear to, 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 to certain men that met in their home, in their, in their little home in Kaslovich. And uh, the rub would be, and it's been like some kids were, you know, like under the covers of the flashlight reading a comic book. The rub was under his covers, you know, he was supposed to be asleep. He was listening in uh, from the other side of the, the other side of the room to his rub's uh, shiurim, to his father's shiurim, uh, uh, you know, taking place in, in the next room. And he tells that uh, the Rambam, who was this hero of his, um, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there'd be a kasha on the Rambam. The Ravid would ask a kasha, and sometimes his father would, you know, would beat back the Ravid and defend the Rambam, and sometimes he couldn't. And his mother comes to his bed. Uh, he says, slowly, I go to mother and tell her with a broken heart, Mother, father can't resolve the Rambam. What should we do? Don't be sad, mother would answer. Father will find a solution for the Rambam. And if he doesn't find one, then maybe when you grow up, you'll resolve his words. The main thing is to learn Torah with joy and excitement. And then he comments that this experience belongs to my childhood. Still, it is not the golden fantasy of a little boy. The feeling is not 
the feeling in it is not mystical. It is a completely historical, psychological reality that is alive even now in the depths of my soul. And of course, we, we, we know the other very evocative uh, you know, story that the Rav would tell a number of times and appears in a num- number of places in the writings of the, the, the uh, symposium of the generations when he would learn, he would feel the presence of of uh, first his grand his father and his grandfather and then Rashi and Rabbi Tam and the Rambam and then Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir the Tanoim the Amoroyim and the Rishonim they're all enter the room and they join the symposium that he and his students are initiated into and, and these these kinds of stories are you know bookends to to his view of the Masorah and the role of Talmud Torah not merely as in intellectual, cold intellectual uh, process, but this live, vibrant, human, psychological uh, uh, experience. Uh, Now this story, this story, if you only know the story, which is kind of this like warm, fuzzy story that we like to tell to show that the briskers aren't these, you know, cold, heartless automatons, but the story in the context of the essay and its place in the essay if you understand it within that the larger context of the essay, it, it's really coming to say something else, or, or something in addition, um, about the meaning of Masorah slash Talmud Torah uh, as a form of worshipping God and as a form of, as a, as a mode towards Devekut, towards, towards cleaving to God. And when you incise the story just as a kind of warm, fuzzy anecdote, you're really you're really taking it not just out of context. You're really doing a disservice to what this, what that, what this anecdote is is coming to prove. I think that the well, the story itself obviously he places it in the very last chapter. In other words, it's in chapter 19, and then chapter 20 is just a summary. So this is sort of the pinnacle. This is the climax that the book has been leading up to, which is very shocking. As you said, it's a it's a very deeply philosophical work. And then suddenly there's a story about his childhood, a story which, by the way, is, is, is uh, fascinating and poignant. It's kind of sad that he had no friends other than his imaginary friend, the Rambam. Um, and uh, he is trying to make uh, a couple of points here. Uh, one interesting thing that I'd just like to mention Derek Agab for, for teachers is that he points out here the Symposium of the Generations, as you said, uh, his relation, you know, the relationship between the student and the teacher and the teacher and the student. Uh, he never talks about the relationship between the student and the student. The idea of chavruta, which we promote today. Mm-hmm. People study best the chavruta. Which uh, was not something that he knew about. He never had, never had a chavruta. Exactly. He, he, talks, he's, he never went to yeshiva. Uh, he learned with his father for, I don't know, 12 years, something like that, one-on-one, for 12 hours a day. Uh, he never had a chavruta. And so... Uh, he starts off the book writing about the individual and God, and it seems very ahistorical and very individualistic. But by the end but of the reflection book, of his experience, right, but by the end of the book, he's already brought in the community, and he's brought in, and he takes pains to distinguish between, let's say, the mystical search for God, which is an individual search where a person isolates himself from society and removes himself from history and just focuses on his ecstatic individual experience. And the halachic approach, where halacha must be lived within society, and with, which is within a historical continuum, and which has a masorah, 
And by the end, this very individualistic book has, has come and brought us back into the flow of the history and community. And it's a very important point that people try to say, you know, Rav Soloveitchik is the philosopher of the individual and Rav Cook is the philosopher of the community. But that's not true of either of them. It could be that it is true that each one put maybe more emphasis, a different starting point, different emphasis, but both of them encompass the other end of the spectrum as well. And uh, Rav Soloveitchik here is making... Uh, a couple of important points. One is that when you're studying a text and you're teaching a text, it's not just you and your students in a classroom in 2009 or whatever year it is. It's, it's you joining the flow of the generations. Now, the, this, this flow it's, of... It, well, it's more than that. It's, it's you as teacher uh, serving as, in other words, uh, introducing the students to that. Right. Uh, he talks about teaching as being an act of chesed. In other words, one has this great spiritual wealth that he's received, and you're passing it on. In fact, he, even, he makes an even bolder point. He said the Torah Shebikhtav is something black and white. Uh, you can't change one letter of it. If you have a Sefer Torah with one letter missing, it's puzzle. However, the Torah Shebaal Peh has never been objectified. Even though we have all these books on our shelves, the, the Mishnah, the Gemara, he said still Torah Shebaal Peh uh, is something that's passed on from teacher to student and something that as you receive it, it merges with your individuality. And when you pass it on, you're passing on part of yourself. And there's sort of a merging... Secretion of the self onto the... Right. And, and that's not a bad thing. You know, people say, oh, you're just being subjective, but if you would be objective about halacha... No, he's saying... Subjectivity is part of the essence of halacha. Chidush is part of the essence of halacha. Your own individual contribution is part of the essence of halacha. Not that you should be making things up and, and putting in whatever you want, but as part of a historical development and flow and methodology, you do add your own individual contribution and pass on part of yourself. And so the bond between the parent and, te- between the parent and child or teacher and student is not just you know, that the teacher gives grades to the student on his tests, but the teacher is really, should be, forming, he's passing on part of himself to his student. And in that sense, he's merging with the student, and that's what he's describing here. When he gets the Torah from his father, he's also getting the Torah from the Rambam and Rabbeinu Tam, and of course that whole chain starts with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, Torah is a means of Dveikut to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. One of the components of the book is this distinction between, in Hebrew, the Chavaya, uh, Chavaya uh, Gilui, the revel, what here you call the revelational uh, experience, and the Chavaya Datit Tivit, the, the uh, what in English you call the, the natural experience or the natural consciousness that there, which you mentioned earlier, that part of our, uh, you know, part of our connection is through revelation in which we are the passive recipients. Either we, I, the Navi, or I, the member of the Jewish people that receive God's words via uh, the Nevoah of Moshe Rabbeinu or the other Nevi'im. And then there's the natural uh, consciousness, the natural experience, where we can discern something about God and His world by, like you described, going out into nature and, and, uh, and observing and experiencing. And, uh, these two... Um, 
you know, these two uh, pipelines, as it were, flowing in, in different directions, which then connect up to this idea of Ratzov Vashov, uh, that, you know, sometimes we are the recipient, sometimes we are the, the active, sometimes we're, we're passive, sometimes we're active. The, although the world doesn't talk about it here, they seem to be either echoing or would resonate with somebody that's interested in this larger question or this parallel question of the relationship between you know, kind of this old conversation which seems to keep coming back, religion and science, as it, you know, which is usually posed uh, with the assumption that there's a natural conflict between the two, um, which is something that one senses that the Rav did not feel uh, in, in a, in a, that, it, that the conflict exists, that there's anything to be afraid of. That's always something that seems to come through this notion that you know, science does not... Pr- Science does not uh, uh, present a uh, an attack on religion. It's nothing that we need to uh, you know to, to shy away from. That we can be engaged with that, and not only can we be engaged with it as a as a form of a kind of cheap uh, you know that we have answers to all of those questions. But that in and of itself, the chavayat tivit, the natural religious experience, is uh, is also a uh, component feeding into our into our religious lives. Uh, to what degree does this essay, you know, kind of again, he, he doesn't directly address the science religion question here, but to what degree does that play into that other larger question, which is something some may be surprised, is something which still is on the educational agenda, communal agenda. He has in the beginning some very interesting comments about the sources of of Kfira. Uh, and he says this natural search for God uh, is something that Judaism esteems and desires, but on its own it's insufficient and it's doomed to failure. The problem is not with science per se, but the problem is when science oversteps its bounds, when it draws conclusions that it's not warranted to conclude. Uh, however, what he he Many traditional thinkers think that the only way someone can be a kofar is if he's either insane or stupid or malicious. Uh, and the rub, her- the only way somebody can be a heretic, right? A heretic, right? The only one, the only way someone can be an atheist, can deny God, can deny religion, is is either through malice or stupidity or insanity. The rub does not say that here. He shows understanding how if someone does not have a revelational approach to God, he has only the natural approach to God, it will, it eventually can lead him to, he's looking for something absolute, but then he, he will either give up on the search or he'll think he found it just within the created world. He has a whole, uh, a whole explanation, a whole passage where he goes through the sources of Kfira in the modern world where he shows He's not blaming people. He's showing that the the natural approach by itself, though valuable, is insufficient, and it needs to be supplemented by revelation. And I think that this is a bold statement for uh, for someone like him to make, for a traditional thinker to make. Um, as far as religion and science in general, of course, he has a very uh, positive attitude towards technology and scientific progress, and he thinks it shows man's, uh, you know, majesty and man's ability in his Elohim. On the other hand, he did realize that uh, Judaism's problem is not with technology per se, but with, let's say, a mechanistic approach to man. To, in other words, 
science's approach to the world is not a problem. Science's approach to man is what's, is what's a problem. Uh, if it thinks that man is just, you know, a natural being, that's the problem. One of the, um, one of the components of the book which is liable to strike the reader, uh, although it's present in, in, in some of the Rob's other writings, including in Ishalacha, but here, in a, perhaps in a more uh, distinct way, is the presence of a lot of um, Kabbalistic, Kabbalistic notions, Kabbalistic terminology. We don't generally think of Rabbi Soloveitchik as a Kabbalist, and, and clearly he wasn't, but he introduces certain Kabbalistic uh, forms. There's been some writing in you know, academic treatments to what degree uh, was Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, influenced by these Kabbalistic notions, to what degree is he just using them as a kind of tool to express an idea? Is he just using it as a metaphor? Is he really adopting the Kabbalistic notions and, and grappling with them? But it's certainly one of the you know, dominant features of the book. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on, on that or give your take on, on what that, what that uh, you know, the reference to the Kabbalistic literature is doing here in the work. Right. Well, I, I think that, I mean, my personal view is that he used these purely as metaphors and he wasn't a Kabbalist in any sense of someone who actually uh, it, it didn't guide his religious observance. In fact, uh, one of the important points that he makes here is that uh, many people throughout Jewish history, he doesn't make this directly, but this is a point that emerges from the book. Uh, throughout Jewish history, people have seen halacha as something you do and when you're looking for spirituality, you have to look for a supplement for halacha. You have to look towards Kabbalah, towards philosophy, Hasidus. towards Hasidus. And he's saying, no, if you read carefully the, let's say, the last uh, ten chapters of the book, even before that, uh, the, maybe from chapter eight and on, he's saying, no, you can, find your, you can and should find your spirituality within halacha. Halacha is a source of spirituality. You don't need these supplements. Uh, that's uh, one of the major imports of, of all of his writings. Uh, what's interesting though, when you talk about Kabbalah, he very often says the Kabbalists say the Kabbalists, he doesn't say where it is. My personal impression is that what he was familiar with in Kabbalah was uh, the writings of Chabad. Uh, not necessarily all of them, but certainly the Tanya and the Likutei Torah. And uh, he was also familiar with uh, the Zohar. I don't know to what extent he was an expert in the rest of Kabbalah. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, I mean, uh, a topic you and I have discussed uh, before in the past, um, I'm not sure whether this was your, uh, your uh, formulation or you were quoting somebody else, is the degree to which you look at Robert Salvage's philosophical, philosophical writings, he's, uh, he has to be classified as a, uh, a religious anthropologist in the sense that the questions that he's concerned with and the topics that he's writing on are, are concerned not so much with God, uh, but with man, uh, with uh, how things affect, even in perhaps the most famous case, in Koldo uh, Didofek, um, where uh, he ta- tackles the most uh, thorny theological problem um, of Tzadik Viralo, of, of how could it be that the righteous suffer, um, he... he, he one of the great innovations of that work is turning the question on its head because he turns it away from a question on God to a question about man, what man's response to suffering should be. Uh, and that's one of the, the truly unique um, components in his thought and, and, and writing. But in this book, one senses it's, it's 
it may be uh, really one of his most directly theological works in the sense that he's really, although it has, again, the Ratzel Vashov, it's a dialectic, it's two points. He's, he's clearly talking about man's quest for relationship with God, man's quest for meaning, uh, to borrow the phrase he used before, man in search of God, but he's also concerned with, you know, God in search of man. And in that sense, you know, is it, you know, clearly much more theological work than what, what we're used to in the writings of Rabbi Soloveitchik? I think that there are a couple of points of books, a couple of points in the book where he gets into certain metaphysical issues which are not standard fare for him. Uh, when he talks about the unity of man and God through unity of knower and known via joint knowledge of the world or joint knowledge of halakha, that's not necessarily a typical thing in his work. But if you uh, look at the larger picture, I think it fits in to, to the general approach that he for example, when he talks about prophecy. Compare his discussion of prophecy towards the end of the book with the Rambam's discussion of prophecy. The Rambam discusses why God gives prophecy, how God gives prophecy, through what means the agent intellect, the active intellect. And the Rav talks about prophecy not as, not from God's perspective, but from man's perspective. In other words, not, he says, prophecy is a mitzvah. What do you mean prophecy is a mitzvah? There's a mitzvah to prepare yourself for prophecy. God only gives prophecy to people on a certain level. So all we have to know about prophecy is how to prepare yourself for it. When God will give it, that's his business. Um, And so again here, he takes these themes, uh, Talmud Torah also. He's talking about Talmud Torah, its influence on the person who's learning. He's not talking, for example, about his his ancestor, uh, uh, Reb Chaim Volozhner, he talks about how Talmud Torah affects God. God right. How it does a tikkun. The Rav has no... This that's not, not part of his vocabulary. Um, although the, the, point that, the point that you're making is uh, it's a broader point. So the Rav's religious anthropology, as you called it, um, is not just... It's not his own chidush, but it's because he is a good student of modern philosophy he knows that you can no longer speak about things from God's point of view. Ever since Kant, you cannot speak about metaphysics or, or things that are beyond the human realm in uh, terms, and, and this is a part of the subjective turn in philosophy in general, that all the issues he discusses, he discusses from the human point of view and not from the absolute metaphysical point of view. And in that sense, he fits into a broader school, uh, you know, of uh, Jewish and non-Jewish thinkers who discuss uh, these issues from the human perspective. Any concluding points uh, that are important for the listener to know about this important new work? Um, I would say, number one, this should not be the first book of the rough that you read. (laughs) (laughs) First, you should read some of his more accessible works, and you can work your way up to this. Uh, It's definitely worth the effort. I think that what you see here, uh, in terms of the rough's own personal struggle, I would, I would just focus on two points in conclusion. You see, in this book, clearly there's a sense that the Rav is grappling with his own issues, with his own problems. One thing that really sets off this whole inquiry is his desire to, to be an individual, his desire to be creative, his desire for freedom. And yet, then along comes this ostensibly oppressive halakha, this revelation. And by the end of the book, he's managed to to integrate both sides of this dilemma, that he is a fully committed halachic Jew, 
but he has become a partner with God in halacha. Mm-hmm. And he has integrated himself, his individuality, his, his creativity, even his freedom. And this is uh, difficult to explain in a minute, so I won't go into it. Uh, you can read the introduction to the book, you can read uh, other writings. But within, he finds halacha as the source of his freedom. His, his freedom to be better, to, to come close to God, to, to realize himself, to realize all the, the possibilities, the potentiality in existence, to expand his existence, he gets to all that through halacha. So I think that that's something that was a very personal struggle for him and that that can speak to anyone who feels oppressed by the halacha, mm-hmm. that it, it is quite the contrary, it's quite the opposite. Everything that he was searching for at the beginning, he finds exactly through revelation and not despite revelation. Uh, another thing is that you see here is many philosophers will take, uh, they have a, a philosophy and then they make the world fit into it. And he does the opposite. He starts with what is. And he says, if God created the world in a certain way, if God created certain abilities in man, certain desires, potentials, intellect for intellectual inquiry, for physical existence, he says these things are not bad in themselves. They can all be integrated into the service of God. They can all be raised and, and, and not, by, not by being ascetic and denying. You don't have to crush your human side you can incorporate and raise your human side and all the different aspects. You want, to, you want to live in the world, you want to create society, you want to reach higher levels. All of that can be incorporated into Avodah Hashem and should be. And I think this is a very powerful message for, for Jews and for teachers. Okay, the book again is And From There You Shall Seek, a translation of Uvi Kashtem Misham by Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, published by the Meotzar Harav series of the Torah Sarov Foundation and distributed by Ktav. You can get it online at Ktav, K-T-A-V dot com. You can get it on Amazon.com and in fine Jewish bookstores everywhere. We hope to bring you more conversations about uh, noteworthy books in the Jewish world, particularly as they uh, as uh, they bear on our work in uh, Jewish education through our Atid Jewish Educators Book Club, which you can find on our website at org, or through the iTunes podcast store. Of course, it's free, even though it's a store. Just search for Atid, A-T-I-D, on iTunes, and you can find this and other podcasts about important topics in Jewish life, living, learning, and its uh, relationship to our work in Jewish education. Thank you, Rabbi Ziegler, and we look forward to future volumes from the Torah Sarov Foundation. Thank you.